my dear sweet mother bought me this blue snowball microphone. The title is the, the like the the brand is blue. It's not actually the color blue, but it's actually a much nicer microphone than like my phone. And so I have this setup, which I had to learn how to do it because it's been like two years since I've used it. And I got this little pop filter, and I'm still down in the basement and everything. And there's still like uh, my kids running around, but I think that this is going to sound a lot better. At least in my headphones, it sounds a whole lot clearer and crisper. So I, I'm excited. Like guys, this is turning into like like a legitimate podcast, even though this is only the second episode. Who knows what's going to happen after this? Uh, Actually, I do want to tell you, for those of you who are kind of getting into this and you enjoy the last one, and if you enjoy this one, we are actually going to have our first interview, our first guest next week, if all goes well. There is a woman named Jonna Mirabella. Her and her husband were my leader's Man, back in 2003, believe it or not, I had just finished my missionary training through Youth with a Mission in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So I was in Minnesota, and then I went to Scotland, and I was there for three months doing what's called a School of Frontier Missions. And then after that, I went to Istanbul, Turkey, and I lived there for two years. And Jana and her husband, Steve, they were actually my leaders over there in Istanbul, and it was maybe one day I'll sit here and I'll tell some of my stories about being there. But it was it was absolutely one of those uh, formative times in my lives, in my life, my lives, in my life, because I had just turned 18. I went like two days after my 18th birthday and I was there until I was 20. Be- and then after I there, I moved to Panama where I was and I for like 15 years and it's still the primary place where I live. My wife is from there and everything. And so anyway... Being there in Istanbul and experiencing uh, being a missionary in this kind of location where there's persecution and uh, just the difficulties that go along with that, uh, Jana and her husband Steve, they were uh, they were like parents to me, and they still are. They, they, I I love them so much, and and Jana actually just she sent me some messages through WhatsApp saying that they had kind of an urgent matter, and so she she is actually. And this long story, she'll tell it, but she is in Iraq right now where they've been for a couple of years and they had some urgent thing that happened and the kind of the doors open because uh, as, as you know, most of the most borders, most international borders have been closed. And so nobody's been able to fly in or out of the States or many other countries. And so a door opened for her to be able to leave Iraq and come to New York. And since I'm just a few hours away, she said, hey. Uh, I know that you're in Pennsylvania. I'd love to come visit you. And so she is coming down to to visit this weekend. And I asked her if she would let me do an interview with her. I'm telling you guys, she has some of the most incredible missionary stories. If you want to hear like a legit from a legit missionary who's out there doing it, who's actually, who's out there living for Jesus and setting nations on fire. Jonna is one of those people. So make sure you stay tuned for that next Thursday. If all goes well, we're going to do that interview and you'll get to hear some incredible stories in her testimony. So just, just so you know, we have that first guest, which I'm really excited about. That's actually the reason I pulled out this snowball mic in the first place, because I was thinking, man, I need a better mic than just like a mic, than just like my, my phone. And so I knew that I had this in a box somewhere. So I pulled it out and got it set up. And so here we go. So I'm super excited about that. Also, we have a new Facebook page that I just set up. It's called just simply the Revival Carriers Podcast. You can just find it on Facebook. Uh, It's just something where I will probably start posting just some pictures and context items for this podcast. Like 
next, the, the, the following bio that we're going to be doing is on a man called John Knox. Today is John Welch. And uh, so I'll probably put up pictures and things like that so that you can see. And so go ahead and go join that if you are interested in like following this podcast more or sharing it or things like that. So that's also where you can comment, ask any questions. I'll be on there and be able to like talk to you more directly than, than through this method. And lastly, in terms of announcements, we have a new email address, which I just try to keep everything as simple as possible. It is called the Revival Carriers Podcast at gmail.com. I know it's not super fancy, but hey, uh, you got to start somewhere, right? And so to all of my ones of fans out there, thank you so much for listening. And let's get into this. When he first took up his residence in Ayer, the place was so divided into factions and filled with bloody conflicts that a man could hardly walk the streets in safety. Since duels were commonplace, Welch made it his first job to eradicate the bloody quarrelings, but found it very difficult work. He was so eager to pursue his purpose that he would often rush between two parties of men fighting, even amongst the blood and the wounds." Today, we're going to be talking about a man named John Welch, who is someone who that has fascinated me for years, largely because he was never, uh, I would say, globally famous. He was definitely famous in Scotland and England during his time, but he's kind of faded from history. I, I had never heard of him until... I honestly don't even know how I heard of him. The truth is, I... I Kind of how you know you'll go on YouTube and you go down like the black vortex of of just like information or funny videos or whatever it is, where you go and you're just go click on one video, click on another video, and then something's referenced in that video. So then you go to another video. That's kind of how I am with with church history and really anything that I study. And so somehow through the study of church history, I came across the name John Welch and. I discovered this little 24-page book on him, which I originally thought was actually the only real information on him. But I've recently found, especially during uh, my, my preparations and studies for this podcast, I actually discovered there there is a full book about him that's like a 500-page book. And then I found another, just a PDF file that was scanned by like the Glasgow Library that is a list of sermons from important figures during like the 16, 1500s from, uh, who, were, who were influential in Scotland and England. And there are a couple of sermons from John Welch in that document. And so that 24-page book actually is so rare. Like you can't find it on eBay. You can't find it on Amazon. The only reason I was able to find it was thankfully the Glasgow or maybe it was the, the Library of Edinburgh. But one of those one of those, those Scottish libraries, they digitized the 24-page book and they uploaded it into PDF format for anyone to be able to read. And so I do have all three of those books. I have links to them that I'll put in the Facebook group if you're interested in looking at them yourself you can just join the facebook and that's the where i'll post like links and and information like that so make sure you join that but this guy 
he is someone who just sort of faded from history, but he was so amazing. So the events that we're going to be talking about throughout this episode, just so you're aware, they happen kind of in the in the in the middle of the 1500s. John Welch was actually born in 1570, so mid late 1500s up until the early 1600s. Yeah, so you can tell it's obviously quite a long time ago, but it always amazes me how. People of God, people who were revival carriers, people who are carriers of the power of God, even though they may fade, they may never even be famous, they may not be like a big name person, the impact that they have will just continue it like like the butterfly effect. It'll just keep emanating out. It'll keep uh, spreading and spreading. And it's amazing how people who are sincerely seeking truth in there, like the book of Jeremiah says, which is largely what this podcast is based on. That's kind of the verse that the Lord gave me for this podcast was, seek the old ways, the ways that were good. It, people who do that, God, the Holy Spirit, will often draw us to important people who will be influential in our lives. And for me, John Welch is one of those those people. And so uh, I, I learned about him. I started reading about him and was just fascinated by the impact that he had just th- throughout many parts of Europe and just what an awesome man of prayer, an awesome man of God he was. So just know, late 1517s, uh, I realized that a lot of biographies, as they go through, they tend to skim through the early life. I know for myself, whenever I read a book, a lot of times I'll skim through because, you know, I just want to get to the juicy stuff. I want to get to the miracles. I want to get to the influence. I want to get to the persecution. But I, during this podcast, because I'm not like speaking in front of a church where I've only got like 30 minutes to really talk and I can actually go deep, we can go deep dives, deep into these biographies, into the lives of these people. I don't want to rush it. I really want to take our time, really study these people out, really get to know who they were, why they were they who they were. And I don't want, I, I know a lot of times whenever people do studies of men and women of God, they also tend to romanticize the lives of these people. And I don't want to do that. I, as much as possible, I want to look at their flaws and their mistakes. Uh, take, for example, some of the classics, right? Like Smith Wigglesworth. If you read a story, a book about Smith Wigglesworth, almost always you're going to hear about the incredible power, the incredible miracles. And those things are true. The stories of Smith Wigglesworth, whenever the elders of churches would come in and try to have competitions to see who could stay in the room long and the longest with him in prayer because the power of God was so intense that they couldn't handle it. Or the, the, the different miracles and healings. Those things are all true. But people, they don't ever talk about the negative sides, right? They don't talk about how Smith Wigglesworth was actually not very, people didn't really like him very much. He was he was mean, he was angry, he was rough, he was rude. And people don't talk about that. Or, or Catherine Coleman, they'll, they'll talk about the awesomeness of the Holy Spirit and the anointing that she had and the healings that she, that she had and, and the lives that she influenced. And those are all true, but they don't talk about how she was 
I guess I don't know if fascinated is the word or maybe even obsessed. I, she had a a weakness for design and fa- like like designer clothing and really fancy things and and not not that it, those things are sinful. Please don't don't think that I'm, I'm I'm not going like poverty on this. But but she she lived lavishly and a lot of people don't talk about that. They don't talk about how she actually flat out lied and said that the only book she ever read was the Bible, but after she died, they found a library full of books in her house, and yet God used her. So this in this podcast, we're going to look at flaws. We're going to look at very flawed people, especially the next biography on John Knox. He was an incredibly flawed person, but they were people that God used, and that's what I love about doing biographies is we get to really see the good, the bad, the ugly, and we get to see the grace of God. And it should give us hope. Whenever we romanticize people and we only ever see the good in them, then they become it becomes impossible. It becomes impossible for us to be anywhere near them because we can't possibly ever live up, live up to the standards of these books that only show the highlights of their life. And so... Uh, ironically, John Welch was actually a pretty squeaky clean guy and there's so little information. I don't have a lot of like negative stuff about him to talk about, but I I do just want you to know that during this podcast, as we do these episodes, it's not going to be, these are not going to be romanticized versions of their lives. We're going to go into the truth as much as possible. So John Welch, if you look him up, you can also look him up as John Welsh with an S-H at the end of his name, which I guess it was common back then. Maybe I, I couldn't tell you. Old English or something like that. They had different spellings. But I refer to him as John Welch because that's how I learned about him. He was born in a place called Dumfrieshire or the counter, the county of Dumfries in 1570s. Now, that's southern Scotland. So just get that in your imagination. Think about it. The south of Scotland. There were so many things that were happening in the 1500s, in this time of John Welch. Uh... Uh, for example, Christopher Columbus had just discovered the Americas in 1492. So John Welch was born in 1570. So there were like globe-changing things that were happening. Now, the Reformation, which was... It was a movement by a group of Christians called the Protestants whenever they rose up against the false teachings of the Catholic Church at that time. They were actually led by a man named Martin Luther... And so the Reformation was 53 years in whenever whenever John Welch was born. So you can only imagine for the past thousand years or so, the Catholic Church had been really the only denomination. Now, there had been different popes and there had been all kinds of changes to the Catholic Church and all sorts of things that we won't go into. But really, it was it was just 53 years before John Welch was born that Martin Luther and other men and women of God stood up to the false teachings of like um, paying money to get your family out of out of purgatory and uh, worshiping idols and doing all the, the Bible only being in Latin and all these kinds of crazy things that were going on at the time, things that we can't even imagine today. Those were commonplace practices just up until 1517. So John Welch. He had gone, he was born into this time where there was really this baby movement called the Reformation. 
it had been going on for 53 years and there was so much persecution, even in the time of John Welsh. The, the, the Catholic Church was violently persecuting mo- most Protestants and including a lot of kings, a lot of royalty who were Catholic. You have to remember that a, a, or, or take into account that a lot of royalty had become Catholic. Catholicism at that time was very political. It was very dominating in the world. And so... Uh, John Welch was born into that. Now, Martin Luther himself died in 1546. So think about that. John Welch was born in 1570. Martin Luther happened, uh, died in 1546, but the Reformation was still going strong. Historians actually consider the Reformation to have formally ended in 1648. So that all was moving completely during the life of John himself. So he was born into the Reformation, he lived through the Reformation, and he died near the end of the Reformation. So you can imagine kind of the turbulence of, you have this this whole, the Catholic Church had the complete grip on everything in the world, and this small little group of people stood up and they said, this isn't right, we're, we're not going to pay indulgences, which is whenever they paid priests to get family out of purgatory. We are not going to just listen to Latin. We're actually going to learn the Bible. The common people need to learn the Bible in the common tongue. We're going to be able to study the Bible on our own. And John Welch was born into that. Now, the year 1570, just whenever John was born, there was st- like there was still so many things happening. For example, Pope Pius V, he excommunicated Queen Elizabeth I of, of England for heresy and persecution of the of the English Catholics, and uh, so the Pope actually absolved all of her subjects from allegiance to the crown. And that, ha- that actually happened on February 25th, 1517. So th- think about this. The popes, they were. this is how political and how powerful they were that Pope Pius actually was able to excommunicate Queen Elizabeth I and tell all English Catholics that they did not have to follow her or be, or be loyal to her. I, I, that's just, that's wild. Ivan the Terrible, he has this crazy name and he, he was this brutal ruler but he became a Protestant Christian supposedly in the year 1570, the year that John Welch was born. And it's interesting because like, even though he became a Protestant Christian, personally reading his story, I really don't think that he ever was really a Protestant. I think that it was just a political move because of the, the Protestant church was becoming so strong because Ivan the Terrible, even just a few, a few years after he converted to, to Christianity, to becoming a Protestant, he still continued being a warlord and he killed his, his own son a few years later. So John was born into this time where there was so much war. The Catholic church was fighting, uh, was at odds with the English royals. And so there was just a lot of tension, a lot of things happening. John, he's, you know, he's kind of interesting. He's different from a lot of, a lot of people that we will study over these course, course of time. It's, it's interesting how God will choose different people, right? Because a lot of time we hear these rags to riches stories where uh, somebody who was dirt poor, they were born into nothing and God chose them from birth and they were like a prophet. Their mother knew that it was kind of like a John the Baptist sort of story, like William Branham, right? Who was born out in a shack in the middle of nowhere. And there's like a beam of light that came and like an angel told his mother, this is going to be a man of God and all, all of these crazy things that happened. 
that that's kind of what we're used to. We love those rags to riches kind of stories or they someone who was born into to, total utter poverty and a family didn't know the Lord and they uh, rose up to become prophets for God and it was this awesome story. John actually has kind of an opposite life to that because John was actually born, born into a fairly wealthy family. Uh, he They actually had a lot of money. His father had a lot of land and he was really rebellious. He was not like this kid floating around prophesying when he was a child or a teenager. He was, His parents put him in school, which school was for rich kids back then. And he would run away from class because, and cause all, he was like the, he was that rebellious student, right? And I was actually reading about this because he graduated what was called grammar school back then. And according to educationalengland.org, grammar school was only for the wealthy. And these wealthy kids, they would spend about three years being homeschooled, I imagine with a tutor of some kind, most likely. And then they would spend the next three years in grammar school. I don't know the ages. I imagine when they were teenagers. Uh, I, I imagine back then a lot of it depended on money and because it was it was largely private, they probably could jump in kind of whenever. And so these kids, they would go to spend three years in grammar school and grammar school was focused on reading, writing, and arithmetic, which is a lot of the same things that we focus on now. But specifically, and this is interesting, specifically on the teaching of Latin, because the idea was that these wealthy kids who could afford growing, going to grammar school were the ones that would become Catholic priests. Now, that should tell you something about the state of the church right there. Only the wealthy who could afford going to grammar school were trained to be, to pre, be priests at that time. It wasn't about the relationship with God, and uh, it, it sounds a lot like a lot of churches that I know of, that I've been in, that I've, uh, I, I've been a missionary for 20 years now. So I've been in pretty much every kind of church, every kind of denomination that you can imagine. And there are a lot of churches where all of the value is on, or do you have a master's degree? Do you have a degree in this? Are you, are you well-educated? I'm not against education. I've been, I've been educated myself. I've, I've been through a lot of courses now and all that kind of stuff. I'm just saying that uh, whenever we decide as human beings, as we do, whenever we look at someone and say, oh, this is a man of God or not a man of God or a woman of God or not a woman of God, it should never be based on, oh, did they go to school or not? It should be by their fruit, right? So John, he was born in this wealthy family. He was a rebellious kid. And he went to grammar school. He never appreciated it. He didn't want to be a Catholic priest. Yeah, he he didn't want to. The Reformation was happening, and he didn't want to be a pastor. He didn't want to be part of anything. He just wanted to be his rebellious kind of stuff. And he he eventually did graduate by force, pretty much, because his father was wealthy and he was paying for everything. But as soon as he graduated grammar school, he ran away and joined a gang of thieves on the border of England and Scotland. And he survived by robbing travelers. So John Welch, who was going to grow up to be this incredible man of God, I mean, he was a thief. And I don't know about you, but I have been to lots of border towns in my life. I travel extensively every year. Our ministry ministers in a, a 10 different nations, and I have spent a significant amount of time in like bussing it from nation to nation. And I'll tell you, border towns are the most uncomfortable place, and those are the places where you're constantly having to watch your wallet. You always have to be careful because that those are like the sketchiest places where you want to go, like in a group, and you have to do all these different ploys. 
there's this one place that I heard of. I, ha- I did not go to this place. I believe it was in the Philippines where a friend of mine had gone and he said that the thieves themselves will put signs up that say, beware of thieves so that the, the tourists will actually feel their wallets and they'll, they'll, they'll pat just instinctively the most precious items in their, on their person. And the thieves will just be there watching and then know exactly where the most precious and valuable items are. And then they'll go and rob them. So thieves are, they're, they're just so, they're, they're so conniving and, and, and uh, intelligent. And so John, he was one of those people. He was one of those people that tormented travelers like myself on the border. And so he, you know, being a thief does not pay very well, especially back then, and so he ended up living in total destitution and poverty, and according to his, the, the little bit of information we have, he was living in rags. Like He was a true picture of the prodigal son, son, prodigal son, and he decided to go back to his father, and he knew his father wouldn't take him back because, I mean, his father had paid for him to go to grammar school, had taken care of him, put him through all this, expecting him to go into some form of ministry and he instead ran away and did the exact opposite, becoming a thief. And who knows what kind of crimes he actually committed out there. But he he uh, wanted to go back home. And so he knew, like I said, he knew he, his father wouldn't take him back. But he had a, an aunt in Dumfries, Scotland. Which, historically, Dumfries, it is a small market town in southern Scotland. And his so there, there was a lot of... Um, like fishing and, and things like that. His aunt's name was Mrs. Agnes Forsyth. Now, Agnes, for whatever reason, maybe she was just a sweet, you know, she's the aunt and she loves her, her nephew. So whenever he came to her, she actually took him in and he spent several days in her home. It actually, the the biography that I, that I have looked at, it doesn't say, exactly say how long that he was with her, but he spent a certain amount of time with, with Mrs. Agnes. And he spent his time actually trying to convince her to talk to his father on his behalf so that he could come back home. And she was kind of hesitant about it. She, there was, like I said, I don't know how many days she was with, that he was with her, but she didn't go straight to his father. I'm guessing if she was wise, which it seems like she was, knowing, knowing how, how John was, she probably wanted to wait and see if he actually had changed or not. And so one day, it just so happened that John's father came to visit his sister, and she asked him if he had heard, she asked John's father, Mr. Welch, Father Father Welch, if he had heard anything about John, to which his father replied, Oh, cruel woman, how can you name him to me? The first news I expect to hear of him is that he is hanged for a thief. So that was the opinion of John's father himself, and she answered, she said that many, well, I need, let me see if I can say this word correctly, many dissolute boy, I'm guessing uh, many who had strayed from the path, I'm just going to paraphrase this for all of our sakes, many boys who have, dis, who have uh, strayed from the fat, the, the, sorry, who have strayed from the path have become virtuous men and she comforted him. And so he, he continued saying, well, my son is gone. He, he continued to say that there was no way that he, he would, he, maybe he would never see his son again. And it's kind of funny because eventually, I guess he must have got the hint that she brought it up for a reason. So she asked, he asked her if she uh, had heard anything from him. And she just, it was like, oh, it just so happens that, and I'm paraphrasing this guy, so don't like, don't hold me to these exact words. But basically she said, oh, as a matter of fact, I have heard of him or I have heard where he is. 
and uh, called John, who was like hiding in the other room, to come see his father. And he came in weeping and knelt before his father and begged his father. And it says that he begged his father for Christ's sake to pardon his bad behavior and that he promised to be a new man. And his father actually was not convinced. And he actually threatened John and rebuked him for the way that he had done things, the way that he had run off. But in the end, because of his, because of John seeming so repentant and because Mrs. Forsyth, his aunt, was so persistent that his father gave him another chance, that he was persuaded to allow John to come back and reconciled him. Now, John, Mr. Welch, uh, baby John, he actually... Even after that, this is what amazes me. This shows the compassion of a father, right? Because even after everything that John had done, he manages to convince his father to send him to college, which college is what we would call seminary today, Bible school, and to to go into the ministry. Think about that. And Mr. Welch, Father Welch, he must have been a man of quite a bit of influence because or, or who knows, maybe the, the requirements to get into seminary were pretty lax. I guess they are today, too. But he managed to get his, fa- his son into college, paid for John to go through college or university, whatever you want to call it. And he was actually a good student. He applied himself, got his life back together. And he actually became the youngest graduate in his class, according to records and biography and comments from other people, he was actually a very, very intelligent young man. He had just sort of squandered it in his youth. And like I said, he became the youngest graduate in his class. He graduated from Edinburgh University in August 1588 at a wee 18 years old. And at 18 years old, guys, he went into the ministry. He went in to be a pastor. And you have to just try to try to keep in mind I want to try and paint this picture of what life was like back then because this was right smack dab in the middle of the Reformation. There were very few ministers who had been trained as Protestants. Everyone had been trained as Catholics. And you can only imagine there had to have been some influence. I know that royalty back then, because this is one of the things that was being protested, was that the royal family back then in Scotland was allowing the Reformation to happen but they were still being uh, adding restrictions that were on the Catholic Church. Like, for example, I know one of the things that was being protested at the time was that the royal family commanded, one of the decrees was that Protestant ministers had to wear those, the the big, like, white hats, the cardinal hats the uh, that the like a lot of Catholic priests wear, that they had to wear uh, those hats and they had to do certain sacraments and certain things that the Catholic Church did. And so... Even though there was the Protestant church going on, there was the Protestant church and there was great steps being taken forward that I'm sure that there was still a lot of mixing going on. There was still a lot of confusion. A lot of the Protestant doctrines had not been fully settled just yet. There were a lot of debates going on. You had John Calvin, who is someone we may look at later down the road. You had John Calvin, who is introducing his doctrine of uh, predestination. You have Martin Luther's teachings. You have all these different really important people who had taught, and we'll talk about John, John Knox later as well, the influential teachings that were happening. And so there were very... There were a lot of factions. There was a lot of, of a lot of people who were split, and not a lot of well-trained Protestant ministries ministers. Sorry, and so John he was sent out by the college by the the people that he was under, uh, 
to another part of Scotland called Selkirk, but he was more of a missionary. It wasn't like today where he went and he just sort of took on a pastorate of a church. Even though he was in his homeland, he was really a missionary more than anything. And it was a small town. As a matter of fact, Selkirk is is still a small town today. I looked it up, and uh, the last census there that's recorded was in 2011, and there were only 5,784 people living there. And Selkirk, that was a little bit north of Dumfries and where John had grown up, but it was still in southern Scotland. Here's just an interesting fact about the, the, the little village of Selkirk. It is there that William Wallace was given the title of Guardian of Scotland after he defeated the English at the Battle of Stirling Bridge in September 12, uh, September 1297. So now I, if you're a historian, you know that that's uh, kind of debated by some people, but it is commonly believed to be true. And it's just an interesting fact that just a couple hundred years later, uh, that John Welch was there as well. William Wallace, he's one of my favorite people to study in history. He is just a wild, a wild man. Selkirk as a town, it was known as like a really bad, really sinful town. There were so few ministers there. And John, when he got there, uh, he actually pastored five different churches in that region at the same time. Now, what, what the history doesn't tell us is whether he started all five of those churches or whether he took on those five churches in the regions when he came. I personally, I think most likely he got there and those churches had been started and been abandoned and he took them on. I've seen this many times on the mission field where missionaries will go and they start churches and then they end up getting sent home or they go home and there's no one to take their place. And so even in some of the places we go in Panama, there are church buildings everywhere that have just sort of been abandoned. And so... This is very common in missions, and so chances are he went in and he just sort of took up the banner in those places. There was a lot of persecution and a lot of pressure in those places, so I imagine a lot of new ministers went in, burned out, and ended up having to leave. So whenever John got to Selkirk, he didn't have a lot of support from the locals. He lived under constant pressure, constant constant persecution. John was still single. I mean, he's only 19 years old, right? He went into the ministry at 18, and then there's this whole process that missionaries and ministers have to go through. of being placed and and just all the things that go along with that. But he ended up he was 19 whenever he went in this town and he ended up meeting another reformed man, a man of the of the reformation, a Protestant man named Mitchell Hill. And Mitchell Hill was where he lived for a while in the beginning. John, he was a man of discipline. Every day, seven days a week, while he was living with Mitchell Hill, he would go to his different churches, the five churches, and he would preach to anyone who would listen, which back then, I mean, that was not a lot of people. There was maybe a handful. I, I would be surprised if they were, it was probably just like one family, five, ten people, just from my experience in missions today, going out into some of those mountainous rural areas. A lot of times churches, like the average church size out there is like 15 people. So I imagine there were probably five, 10, 15 people in his churches. And a lot of the other ministries where he were, a lot of the ministers were territorial. And they were also Catholic ministers who were constantly arguing with him. And this is something a lot of people don't know about, and I'm not going to go into all the details with it. I can just tell you that I've lived it quite a bit. A lot of people don't know, if you haven't been in ministry, at least not for any long amount of time, if you haven't been in a leadership position, you probably haven't experienced how political and territorial ministries can get. It's actually really, really a sad thing. There have been so many situations where our ministry 
uh, we've gone into places or other ministries that we know of that have gone into places and they want to form an alliance. They want to work with people, but local ministries, they can get so territorial and so afraid that someone's going to come in and try and take their ministry from them that they would rather continue struggling on their own than link arms with another brother or sister in Christ. And unfortunately, this is what John went through himself. He was there trying to build bridges, trying to run this ministry, trying to run these churches and bring the presence of God, bring revival, bring the refor- the reformation to these places. And he was just rejected and often on his own, aside from being with Mitchell Hill and the people who were in his home. And uh, here's actually an excerpt from the book. That, that I read on him, that, that 20, one of the books, the 24-page the book that I told you about, which the link will be in Facebook, as I said. But it says this because John was, he had such a reputation, and Mitchell Hill had a lot of people who lived in his house, it seems. So it says, a boy who was living there in Mitchell Hill's house retained a respect for John Welch and his ministry his whole life. His custom was, talking about John, when he went to bed at night, he would lay down a Scots plaid, which is the clothing in Scotland, like the kilt, on his bed. And when he went to say his night prayers, he would sit up and cover himself with it. From the beginning of his ministry to his death, Welch considered the day ill-spent if he was not in prayer for at least one-third of the time. And as we go through these podcasts, we're going to talk about... And you will hear, if you listen to all of them, if you if you regularly listen in, you're going to hear threads. If you're listening to this, chances are you are someone who wants to be a revival carrier. You're a, you are somebody who wants to walk in the power of God, and you want to see miracles, and you want to raise the dead and cast out devils and cleanse the lepers. This is the podcast for you, because you are going to hear threads throughout all of these lives that are going to help you. It's going to help you see how you can walk in that. And one of that is this, is the prayer life. A lot of these people, I've, I have studied this out, and a lot of these men, men and women of God, the minimum that they would spend in prayer was two hours. It was Leonard Ravenhill who said that any minister who doesn't spend at least two hours in prayer a day is not worth a dime a dozen. And I know a lot of people are gonna will, will respond, oh, well, that's the religion and religious spirit and blah, blah, blah. Well, those people are not moving in miracles. If you want to move in the power of God, you need to look at the way people who walked in it actually lived. John Welch divided his time, and some of the most powerful men and women of God that I know, they have divided their time into eight hours in prayer, eight hours to sleep, and eight hours with people. And that's exactly what John Welch did. Uh, it seems to me like the the average time that, that people of power spend in prayer is about four hours. A lot of people that I know today that I have met personally, a lot of them, that's exactly what they do. People like David Hogan, Heidi Baker, uh, these missionaries who walk in power, they tend to spend about an average of four hours a day in prayer. And uh, you'll see that as we move on, that prayer is so key. And for John Welch, it was no different. He, he Prayer was everything to him. There was a man named uh, Ewart, and he said this about, he actually said that John Welch was a type of Christ, which, I mean, those are powerful words. Like, he was a man who imitated Jesus so powerfully that whenever people would preach publicly, when I, sorry, whenever John would preach publicly, 
people saw the reflection of Jesus in who he was. They saw that what he did, the way that he lived his life, that it wasn't just words, that John was a man of truth who lived it. They said that he constantly was in what they called spiritual exercises, which today would translate into prayer, fasting, reading his Bible. That's what he was known for. So throughout John's entire ministry, he faced incredible persecution. There was actually a man named Scott of Headshaw, and he hated John so much, supposedly because John rebuked him for something we don't know what, but he hated John so much that he actually went and chopped off the hindquarters of both John's horses and killed them. John had these two horses. Uh, he, he liked to have two horses to be able to ride and go do his ministries, and this person, this rival person, chopped off their hindquarters and killed them. I mean, that's that's some intense persecution, guys. Actually, the, the persecution in Selkirk got so intense that John eventually was forced out. He decided to move and go to another place. And I'm going to try and say this correctly. It's, it's a long word, but it's called Kirkudbright. And whenever he was accepted back to, um, I should say, whenever he was his resignation from Selkirk was accepted, uh, he went back south to this place called Kirkudbright. And there was still persecution there, but there was actually a little bit more success and uh, it's actually kind of funny. He was in Kirkwood Bright for a few years, and he had a little bit of success in his ministry. Uh, this was during the time of Samuel Rutherford, who we will look at in another podcast. But by the time he left that place, he, because he had the success, uh, whenever he left, everyone went to Samuel Rutherford's ministry rather than staying on the new, the new pastor. And I thought that this was funny because the the way that John found out he was being replaced in Kirkudbright was one day he met this man, this young man named Robert Glendening. And he he meets Robert and he sees that he's dressed in these really fancy clothes of scarlet and silver lace. And John rebuked him for his clothing because John, I, I imagine, during the Reformation, because they were breaking off from the Catholic Church, and the Catholic is, Catholic Church has always been so gaudy with so much gold and jewels and so much wealth that the Protestants, and to this day, a lot of churches, they went completely the opposite direction into we should live more a, a poverty lifestyle, and uh, that's how John lived. And so John sees this man living in all with his really fancy clothing. He rebukes him, and he, he said that he... Uh, rebuked the man for his clothes, told him he needed to change the way that he dressed and start studying the Bible. And it was through that conversation that John discovered that this young man was actually the, the minister who had been sent to replace him. And so he had rebuked this man and that, that, that young man was not very effective apparently because as soon as once they found out that this was the man who was replacing John, all of his people left those churches and went under, uh, left the church, the ministry that John was in and they went to Samuel Rutherford rather than staying under this man whose name isn't, whose name never went on to be like a man of God or anything like that. He liked his clothes too much apparently. Uh, this is something that a lot of people, they don't realize about ministry. And that is a lot of times missionaries and pastors don't actually get the option to choose where they're going to minister. Uh, oftentimes people think, oh, well, missionaries or pastors, they just sort of pray about where they're going to go and then they get to go choose it. But that's just not the case at all. A lot of times they're chosen. I, I actually know of a denomination, which this just baffles me, where they they will send a pastor to a place, but they're only allowed to pastor there for like two years. 
and then they get switched out with another pastor. And that just baffles me because I don't know how you build a relationship with your, your people over that time. But uh, any, either, either way, for John, even though he was replaced in this really weird, funny way, being in Kirkwood Bright actually worked out for quite, uh, quite a bit for him because he did have a little bit of success in his ministry. And he met and married the beautiful Elizabeth Knox, who was the daughter of John Knox. John Knox was one of the main leaders in the Reformation of Scotland. And we will have a podcast with him right after our uh, interview with Jonna. Now, John's life during his ministry was full of all kinds of really crazy, wild things. Like, for example, in, in, in uh, December 1597, he was asked to speak at a gathering of ministries ministers in Edinburgh. And someone at the conference, it was surely some political thing. I'm telling you guys, these political things in ministry are just awful. But someone reported to the king that John had said during one of his meetings that the king was possessed by the devil or a demon and that seven, the seven council members of the king were all demons that gave him advice. And this was not true. He didn't say that, but it certainly caught the attention of the king's council and they actually summoned John to go before them to answer for the things that he said. And he thought for sure that he would be executed and that they would never give him justice. So he actually just went into hiding for six months. And six months later, he was exonerated because they found out that it wasn't true. How that all occurred, we don't know. But they found out that what he, that he had never really said that. So he was exonerated and allowed to go back into ministry. He just had so many tragedies. Like he had three sons. One of his sons was a doctor and he died of an unnamed accident. It just said that he died of an accident. Another one of his sons was on a shipwreck and he managed to survive the wreck and swam to a nearby rock only to starve to death. Whenever they finally found his body, they said that he was on his knees with his hands outstretched as if he died in prayer. And his his third son became a semi-famous preacher in Ireland, but also ended up dying young. So he meet, he's got his wife and all these tragedies are happening. And But John, man, he just keeps on going. In the year 1600, he actually eventually moved to, to Ayr, which remember, he's known as John Welch of Ayr. He was 30 years old, so he's been in the ministry for a while. His ministry starts taking off. He starts to have an effect where he's going. Ayr was a big change for John because it was a big town in southern Scotland. It was still in southern Scotland, but it was on the it was on the western coast, like fully on the coast. So it was like all these different things. Ayr was also this town that was hit by plagues constantly from 1545 to 1647. There were always plagues going on. And a lot of time uh, during his ministry, they were under quarantine, which for those of us if you're listening to this during the, the COVID-19 pandemic, you know what I'm talking about. There's all of the crazy quarantining going on right now. Well, quarantines are not anything new. John Welch went through quarantine himself, and uh, he, was, he was a wild man. I'll tell you what, when Darren Iyer, if you remember the, the little quote that I read before at the very beginning of this podcast, that's talking about Iyer and how there were so many gangs and so many duels that were going on. Fights would break out in the streets and commonly, and John made his first goal to stop fighting and the duel, stop the fighting between the gangs and the duels in town. And so what would happen is 
whenever they would ha- whenever these fights would start, when these gangs would start fighting each other, he would put on a helmet, like an old, I assume, like an old knight's helmet. I just, I like to imagine like an old rusty <laughs> knight's helmet that he found somewhere. Someone gave him, maybe he did like fundraising to buy it or something. Who knows? He would put on a helmet and run into the, into the middle of these fights and force them to stop. And then he would set up a dinner table in the middle of the street and make these gangs sit together. He would pray over the food and then force the leaders of the gangs and the neighborhood leaders to declare that they were friends. And then they would, he would make them all eat a meal together. And then they would end the day and work in that time in worship. And it's just like the most amazing thing. The book says that an excerpt says after the people began to notice what Welch was doing. And after listening to his heavenly doctrine, they quickly came to respect him. He became not only a necessary counselor without whose advice they would not do anything, but he was also an example to imitate. John's ministry actually completely transformed the town of Ayer. He remained so humble, though. This This is the thing. So many ministers, whenever they start to get a little bit of success, humility leaves them. They start to get puffed up with pride. And he was such a humble man. There were so many accounts of whenever... Think about this. Think about this, right? He would pray eight hours a day, but there were still times when he felt like he was empty, that he was not full of the Spirit. We should be able to relate to that. To Don't let yourself be discouraged if you've really started seeking God and you don't feel like anything is happening. He didn't either. A lot of times he didn't. But there were times whenever he was feeling empty, right? And so instead of trying to pretend like everything was fine, he would actually go to his elders and tell them that he felt empty. Pastors, this is this is good advice for you guys. He would tell them that he felt empty and ask them to pray for him. And it was said that whenever it was observed that he did this humble exercise, the meetings usually followed by a flame of extraordinary power. John was also known as a prophet in his town. This is, this is amazing to me. Whenever he spoke, things happened, right? Like one particular case, there was a, a very highly respected man in town who didn't come to church. He wasn't a believer, and he would host soccer or football games on Sunday during these during I mean the Lord's Day, right? A lot of people would come and play, and he would distract them from church. They would go play rather than go to church. And so John would write him letters asking him to stop hosting games on Sunday and to stop disrespecting the Lord's Day. But this man ignored him. So one day, John, he showed up at this man's doorstep with a prophecy saying that because he had ignored the advice given him from the Lord and he would not stop profaning the Lord's day, therefore the Lord would cast him and his house out and that none of his children would enjoy his estate. And what John said happened. The man lost everything, his entire estate, and after he sold it in defeat, he actually said that he realized that John was a true prophet. John was such a man of prayer. He used to say that he couldn't understand how a Christian could spend an entire night just laying in bed and not pray. His wife Elizabeth actually told others how he would every night, he would pray. And sometimes, many times a night, he would wake up in the middle of the night and go to his prayer room. And sometimes she could hear him crying out saying, Lord, won't you give me Scotland? And there was actually one particular night in prayer that was particularly uh, intense. He was crying out. He was 
uh, weeping and making a lot of noise. The next morning, actually, uh, his wife asked him what was happening that was so intense. And he said that the Lord had told them that a sad time was at hand for the church, but that the Lord would have mercy on a remnant. And this actually came to pass not long after whenever uh, great persecution came out against the Reformation in Scotland. During, during the Reformation, actually during all of church history, waves of persecution happen. And uh, we, we see this uh, a lot of times in the United States. We have seen waves of persecution. It's not as broadcast. It isn't out on media. But there absolutely are times of persecution, and there will be more times of persecution. And we have to t- realize that it isn't new, that this is something that's always happened, that the enemy will attack and organize waves, and that is whenever we are to spend our time, like John Welch, spend time in our rooms, in our prayer rooms, crying out, Lord, give us our nation. Lord, give me Scotland. Lord, give me the United States. Lord, give me Denmark. Lord, give me Canada. Lord, give me Panama. That is whenever we need to stand up and we need to pray and seek God. There was, there's just so many accounts about him, guys. I, I you, you should really read his, his full biographies. They're just so amazing. There was one, one particular time. Well, I, I actually shouldn't say one time. There's just one written account here, but there were multiple times when this happened where there was a man who was part of Ch- John's church for quite a while. And what, so, so John, he's interesting because he was a good pastor, right? Like he, he spent his time in prayer, but he often would have, I guess you could call them parties like, or lunches or dinners. He would often have people over to his house. He believed what scripture said about ministers being hospitable. So he would often have people come over, but he would disappear during the parties, right? Everybody would be eating and he would just vanish. He would be gone. And so people would often try to look for him. And this one particular case, and like I said, there are other, other um, accounts of this. It says this, it says, tired of waiting, one of them, these are talking about one of John's guests, opened the window facing the place where John Welch was. And they saw clearly a strange light surrounded him. And they heard him speak strange words about his spiritual joy. This is something that you will read over and over about John. He was very private in his prayer life. He didn't do a lot of public praying. He his his intimate time with God was just that. It was intimacy with God. And people would often try and sneak in and listen to him pray. And every single one of them, time after time, they said that they heard him speak strange words, or uh, they would say that they never heard anybody like that before, or his prayers were so impactful about his joy and, and just uh, man, it was his prayer life was just so awesome. During John, during John's life there in that same town, uh, the bubonic plague was sweeping across Europe. I mean, it was wiping out entire villages, entire towns. People were dying so fast; it was spreading so fast that in some cases, if a family member started to show to show symptoms of the plague, the entire family would abandon them to die in the house for fear of getting it. They would just run out and go. People were dying so fast in villages that they couldn't even bury them individually. People had to be buried in mass graves or burned. During this time, 
Iyer was actually completely in quarantine. The population was at about 3,000 at that time. So it was a small town, and they had canceled, they, had, they had closed the main gates and the entryways in the town to try and keep the plague out. Ironically, they didn't have the plague in their town at that time. It was all outside, and they were trying to keep it out because they had experience with that kind of stuff at that point. And John Welch, he was like this well-known prophet in town, and they, the magistrates would always call John in order to come and... Uh, pray before they would let anyone in. And there was one particular case where these traveling merchants came through and they said they wanted to sell their wares in town. And the guards, they called the magistrates because they said they can't open without the the go-ahead from the magistrates. And then the magistrates, they said, well, we're not opening up this gate until we talk to John Welch. So they called John. John comes out and he took off his hat And he looked towards heaven once they explained everything. And he just went silent for a while. The magistrate's standing on one side of the gate. The guards are standing on their outposts. And these two traveling merchants are on the other side of the gate waiting to know if they can come in or not. And John, he just goes silent, looking up to heaven, hearing from God. And after a moment of silence, he tells the magistrates that they should not allow these merchants in, that they should tell them to move on because the plague was in their packs. The magistrates, they obeyed, they commanded them to be gone, and these merchants then went to a place called Kumnuk. And it was a town that was 20 miles away. They sold their goods there, and the bubonic plague broke out in that town from them so fast that once again, the people couldn't even bury their dead. And the people started to see Welch as like an oracle, an oracle before God. Now, this is once again a really interesting time in history because it was during the ministry, during John's ministry in Ayer, that King James VI was ruling. Yes, This is the same King James who commissioned the King James Bible to be formed in 1604. So think about this, guys. Like, John Welch is ministering, and King James commissions the Bible, to the King James Bible, the English translation of the Bible, to be produced. Now, for those of you who listen, and I'm going to try and say this in the most tactful way possible, for those of you who believe like are King James only and King James is the only version of the Bible that's truly holy and it's the only one that we should take into account, uh, you should know and you can study this yourself. It is open open uh, information that King James commissioned that that Bible only as a political move. He was being pressured by the Catholics on one side and he had this rising Protestant movement that was demanding an English Bible and he was trying to appease them, and he had these Reformed Christians just multiplying and multiplying, and he wanted to please them, so he commissioned the King James Bible to be uh, to be produced while simultaneously uh, bowing to the Catholic Church and severely persecuting the Protestants. So on one hand, he's like, oh, Protestants, we're going to give you the King James Bible. And on the other, he's saying, oh, Catholics, I'm going to be good to you, and I'm going to persecute the Protestants who are not following all of these rituals that they have. And many Protestants, like John Welch, refuse to obey these laws. Here's the interesting thing. The modern Christians of the day did not see King James as a man of God. They didn't didn't appreciate the way that he ministered. King James threw John into prison. 
and many major leaders. And as a matter of fact, while King James was overseeing the King James Bible, he was a practicing homosexual with two male lovers. He showed no interest in women his whole life. And so uh, whenever he was a young man, the the royals actually had to choose a wife for him and basically force him to get married just to continue producing the family line because he wanted to spend all of his time with his male lovers. And uh, this was such common knowledge among the Protestants. They were constantly rebuking King James because King James, he would go to Protestant meetings as a way to like please the masses. And he was constantly being rebuked by the Protestant ministers for for living a homosexual lifestyle. Uh, In one particular case, they rebuked him so sharply that King James actually started to weep in the middle of the meeting. Uh, as a matter of fact, in uh, there's one, one quote about King James and his persecution of the church. It says, the reason why King James VI was so set on the bishops, which bishops is what they called leader, like the elders, the leaders of the Protestant church. It was neither by divine, it was neither by divine institution, which he denied they had. So King James said that the Protestants didn't even have a call from God. Uh, it says, It was not for the profit of the church that he would gain from them, for he knew well both men and their communications, but he merely did so because he believed they were useful instruments to turn a limited limited monarchy into absolute dominion and subjects into slaves. Always in pursuit of his design, he resolved first to destroy general assemblies, which is what they called the church. But the whole thing is, though, is that the church of that day did not see King James as an ally. Even as he was translating the King James Bible, they saw him as a man of sin, a man who wanted to enslave and control them. So uh, I'm, I, have a King, I have King James Bibles. I'm not saying that they're evil or anything like that, but I'm just saying for those of you who say that the King James Bible is the most holiest of Bibles, um, perhaps it would be wise to consider that uh, maybe that is not so much the case and that there are other translations that were actually translated straight from the original languages that are just as good as be- or better. As a matter of fact, I mean, just, just think about it. Uh, King James, like the book of James in scripture, uh, many scholars, or if you've really studied, you chances are you know that James is not the name of that man, that, that book. It's actually Jacob. In pretty much every other language in the world, it's the book of Jacob and the the disciple Jacob. But he was called James uh, just as a way to honor King James. And so uh, there are just different different little things out there. As King James, he continued strengthening his persecution against the church. There was an evening where John was actually out praying in his garden, as we know he often did, but he actually, he stayed longer than usual. He stayed so long, in fact, that his wife decided to go check on him. She came and asked him, like, what, what's going on? Why are you taking so long? And he said that the Lord showed him that he would never preach in Scotland again. And it was not long after that, that King James VI sent John and many other ministers to Blackness Castle in Scotland. Now, Blackness Castle, it is a place near a small village called Blackness. And interestingly, it's it's always been a historical place. They use it to house several high-profile prisoners, such as a man named David Beaton, who was the last Scottish cardinal prior to the Reformation. 
And uh, Blackness Castle, just an interesting little fact, it is currently in use for the show Outlander, which I have never watched, so I don't know if it's any good. It could be a horrible show, so please don't take that as you should watch it. Just If you do watch it, just know that that's Castle Black, where John Welch was held in prison. John, after he was he was imprisoned there, he was sent to multiple different prisons until finally, for whatever reason, King James VI decided he couldn't do anything else with, with John, so he banished him to France in the year 1606, which, so John was 36 years old. Think about that. Think about how much happened in just those six years. That is wild. So he was 36 year old, years old. He was banished to France and never saw Scotland again for the rest of his life. John, of course, immediately went into ministry whenever he arrived in France. He was miraculously able to preach in French after just 14 weeks. Now, I don't know if you ever tried to study language. I am fluent in Spanish, and I also studied Turkish for two years. And I can tell you that to learn a language, to be able to preach in 14 weeks is truly miraculous. I studied Spanish like crazy, and it was six months before I could start preaching in Spanish. And so 14 weeks, that is just very impressive to me. Now, he had had such a hard time in prison. Like he, physically, it was so difficult for him that his health had be, it, it was declining during his time in prison. But whenever he got to France, he started having serious health issues. Despite all of this, his reputation as a prophet drew so many rich and powerful people to his meetings. He was, he was not globally famous, but he was more regionally famous. famous. And He went from town to town. He was trying to find the place where he wanted to kind of settle down and with his declining health, finding a place that was good for his health. And uh, he eventually found a place in France, uh, southwestern France, called Saint, and and forgive me if you speak French, I'm probably going to butcher this, but Saint uh, Jean de Angli. And it was a walled Protestant town and that was really where he spent the rest of his life. Honestly, he spent the, these uh, he spent these years there ministering. And actually, here's just an, let me, let me tell you guys about these miracles. Well, I'll tell you about this one particular miracle. He became friends with a young nobleman who was the heir to Lord Ochiltree, the governor of the Castle of Edinburgh. So this is like uh, this young man was a, an important. Uh, man of status, and he became friends with Welch. It's amazing. Welch was this prisoner, but he had all these famous, powerful friends. And this young man got sick and died. And because it was hot, the this man's friends wanted to bury him. But John convinced them to wait because he didn't believe that his friend was actually dead, much like Jesus with the little girl who died. And John spent this time praying for him to come back to life or I, or uh, reviving or whatever you, whatever you want to call it. However his mentality was because he didn't believe he was actually dead. 24 hours go by that John spends with the body and nothing happens. So the friends come in and they urge him to let them bury his their friend. And John asked to give, them more, give him more time. So 48 hours go by and nothing happened. So the friends decided that they were going to convince Mr. Welch that their friend was dead. And they bring in doctors and surgeons to examine this young nobleman. And the physicians were set to work. They pinched him with pinchers and the fleshy parts of his body and twisted a bowstring around his head with great force. Like, can you imagine the way that they tried to see if people were alive? They took a bowstring, wrapped it around his head, and like, I don't know if they were giving him like a bowstring noogie 
or if they were like twisting his head back and forth or whatever it was they were doing. But all these things they did, there was no sign of life. And all of these physicians pronounced him, and I quote, stark dead, and that there was no more delay to be made. But John, because I'm guessing of his uh, being a man of God that he was and their respect for him, he convinced them to give him at least a couple more hours. And his history says this, Then Mr. Welch fell down before the pallet and cried to the Lord with all his might. He sometimes looked upon the dead body, continuing to wrestle with the Lord, till at length the dead youth opened his eyes and cried out to Mr. Welch, whom he distinctly knew, Oh, sir, I am all whole, but my head and my legs. These were the places that had sorely hurt because of all of the pinching. When Mr. Welch perceived this, he called upon his friends and showed them the dead young man restored to life to their great astonishment. Ah, man, what a powerful man. Then I, all this is happening. And then King Louis VIII of France, he made war upon the Protestant subjects. So King Louis VIII, he was a Catholic king supported by the Catholic Church. So he decides to go to war against the Protestants because they are Protestants. And he besieges the town of St. Jean d'Angely with his entire army and starts trying to destroy the army, John Welch once again finds himself locked in a city and he would come out and he would preach to the people. He would preach during these battles and these battles were crazy, guys. Like it was so intense that one night a cannonball tore through John Welch's own house and destroyed the bed that he was sleeping on and he was completely miraculously unharmed. During these battles, Welch, he actually was the, he decided that he would take gunpowder to the gunners along the wall. And so he would take gunpowder to the gunners as they would fight and they, he would preach to them while they were fighting. And uh, it was amazing because as he was doing this, he would preach to soldiers on both sides. He wasn't just for, for the, the people of, of his town. He would preach to the enemy soldiers as well. There was actually this time the king sent the duke named Espernon to go and listen to John because he had captured so much attention, right? He, the, the king wanted to know, like, who is this guy that is going and preaching? So the duke went into the church where John was preaching and the guards, they went in and they were going to tell John to get out of the church. John was actually in the middle of a sermon whenever this happened. Imagine that. And the guards were going to go pull John out. But the Duke instead, he just sat down on the ground and listened. It says he gravely listened. So he listened in all intensity from the beginning of the sermon to the end. And then afterwards, after the sermon was over, he went and told John that he wished to go with him to the king. And John went willingly. So John leaves his town with the duke, and he, this duke, Espernon, he takes John Welch before King Louis VIII. And the king asks this, this uh, duke, why did you bring John here and interrupt me? And the duke said, these are some of the most amazing words you could say about a, a preacher. The duke answered the king, never has a man spoken like this. So it says that whenever John came before the presence of the king, that he kneeled and silently prayed for wisdom and assistance. And whenever he did that, King Louis challenged him and told him to preach right there and then. And uh, even though the laws of France said he couldn't, John agreed to preach. And so John, knowing that he could be sentenced to death, 
for what he would do for, for preaching in front of the king. He actually preached to King Louis VIII, and it really formed... Well, I'll, I'll actually read to you the quote. The king was so touched by this, he said, Well, well, you shall be my minister. And he actually, according to uh, some accounts, the king, King Louis VIII, started calling John father, and he became one of the most favored ministers of the king of France. And yet, it's interesting because this all happened, but John returned back to the city of St. John. Even though he was favored by the king, the king offered him a position in his courts. John went back to the city where the this, this battle was happening. So what happened was John, he went back to the city and because of the favor he had with the king, the king withdrew his troops from the city, from the town of St. John. John, he commanded the people, he preached throughout the city. Remember, it was only a population of 3,000. And he told them they needed to repent of their sins or that the king would come back and that he would in fact take the city. And it was not long after that, in fact, King Louis VIII did come back. And whenever he returned, he, man, he loved, he loved John Welch so much that he sent horses and chariots and wagons into the city to take John Welch out in order to take him somewhere safe. So he ended up, John ended up going to another town and his health began to decline more and more to the point where the physicians realized there was nothing that could be done. And uh, it's interesting the way that medicine was back then. The physician told John the only thing that could save his life was returning home and breathing his home air of Scotland. And so the friends of John Welch, they went to King James and asked that, he, that John would be allowed to return and die in Scotland, and the king refused them. And the people said, John needs, basically I'm paraphrasing, that John needs to breathe the air of Scotland again. And King James said to him, give him the air, give him the devil. So that's how much King James, who made the King James Bible, once again, that's how he felt about John Welch. And so the friends of John, they approached the king again and asked if he could, they, they said, um, well, if he can't come, they, they basically said he won't minister in Scotland. Um, if they, they said, if you won't let him minister in Scotland, if you won't let him go to Scotland, at least let him minister in London. And the king replied, he said he would only allow John to uh, preach in London, London if they could be certain that John was about to die. And they confirmed that this was the truth. And so this is an excerpt from John being going, going to London. He says, as soon as John, uh, sorry, as soon as ever John heard, heard that he might preach, he greedily embraced this liberty. And having access to a lecturer's pulpit, he went and preached both long and fervently. This was his last performance. For after he had ended his sermon, he returned to his chamber and within two hours, quietly and without pain, resigned his spirit to his master's hands. John died at 52 years old. And just to give you some context, the pilgrims arrived on the Mayflower at Plymouth Rock on November 11th, 1620, two years before John died. So there was so much that happened during his life. And so that's the story of John Welch, guys. Uh, as you can see, he had a very intense life. He was a man of intense prayer. And to his very last day, he died 
preaching the gospel, lifting up the name of Jesus, and bringing revival across France, across Scotland, and finally in London. So I hope that this has been encouraging for you and has has, uh, lifted you up for this week. And I just want to encourage you as we finish up here to go go join our Facebook page. There's more that's going to be coming that I'm going to have that uh, interview with John Mirabella next week, and then we're going to do a bio on John Knox, who was not a contemporary, but just before John Welch and highly influential in Welch's life. And uh, yeah, feel free to ask any questions on Facebook. And uh, please, oh, also do me a favor if you listen to this, please uh, rate this on whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or whatever it is that you listen to your podcast on, please give me a rating and a review because this is just a baby podcast and giving ratings really helps encourage others. Please share this. Help me get this out. Help me get listeners. I understand this is like a, like a niche kind of group. And so I know not everyone is going to be interested in stories like this. But if you know someone with a passion for history and testimonies, uh, please share this with them. Uh, Please check out the notes in Facebook. Uh, You'll see the digital versions of the John Welch book and uh, the life of John Welch in these different places that you can check this out yourself. Thank you so much, everyone. Have a great afternoon. I will see you all next Thursday.